was so happy that Garrett picked that song. Um, Jimmy Needham is a talented guy, but he didn't write it. Um, Ross King, do yourself a favor, and if you uh, like to purchase music, go find Ross King's stuff. I remember him doing that song at a disciple now I was helping to put on 15 years ago. He walked out on stage. The guy has uh, one of the worst stutters I've ever seen, but he sings as eloquently as anyone I've ever heard. God just kind of takes it away from him when he sings. One of the most Christ-like songwriters I've ever met. So find Ross King stuff. He's a good guy. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would absolutely adore for you to take that one home and start reading it. Uh, we think good things will happen because of it. Um, before I get started into all this stuff, uh, last week I wasn't here. Uh, last week I went down to Texas and Tom, uh, one of our deacons, uh, Tom Bullock, uh, was up on the stage and he preached. I listened to the podcast. Dude had a ton of scripture. Like, how many of y'all were here? Like, that was a bunch of scripture, and that is never a bad thing. Like, like if we really do believe that, that the Bible is sufficient and man's words aren't, like, like that's just getting out of the way. That's not, that's not phoning it in. That's, that's letting God be God and you being smarter than what you normally are, right? And so Tom did a great job, I think. Um, and while nobody is asked... Uh, we've got some new people here, so I, it's good to just kind of throw it out there once in a while. Uh, if you don't understand why Tom was on the stage and I wasn't here, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Ephesians 4 tells us that the role of leaders in the church is to train everybody else for the work of ministry. All right? And I'm of the belief that the senior most leadership in church ought to be spending a lot of it, their time and attention training up other leaders to help do that job too. All right? And so one of the tools in our tool belt for that purpose is for me to be intentionally off the stage once a month. Uh, and, and the reason for that is this. Um, there is nothing in this world that seems to work as well for helping you understand a concept and understanding something like the requirement to turn around and teach it to other people. Like many of y'all have walked through that exact thing. All right? And so it's, it's this incredibly valuable tool in our, in our toolbox uh, for other leaders in our church, other men to step up on this stage and be responsible for unpacking the word of God sometimes. And so half the time that's JB. Uh, other times our deacons are rotating through that kind of stuff. And so that's something that we use here. And so Tom is going to be preaching uh, sometime this month regardless of whether I was here or not. But one of the perks, one of the side benefits of doing things that way is that it frees up my schedule to go do some stuff, uh, use giftings and passions to pour into the larger kingdom uh, outside of this place. All right? And so uh, this last weekend I got to fly down to Texas. I was in Beaumont, uh, if you know where that is. Uh, Katie's parents are missionaries in Ghana. Uh, they founded an organization, a missions organization, and last weekend they had their annual uh, fundraising gala. And so I got to stand in front of a room full of people in Beaumont, Texas, and excite their hearts about missions, excite their hearts about what God is doing in West Africa, call them to take steps of obedience into joining what God is doing in Africa. And so uh, uh, thank you for being a church that knows that God's kingdom is bigger than what we do in this room, Right? And so thank you for giving me the freedom, the me the opportunity to step away and build something that's not, that, that's not our empire. Like, does that make sense? Like, like, we really believe here that God's doing stuff outside of these places and that if we really have been gifted by him, these aren't intrinsic things in us, that if he really has given us gifts for the work of ministry, that we need to use those gifts to build stuff that's not just about us, right? And so thank you for being a church that, that's open to those things, that allows me to do those things, that's forgiving sometimes when I'm not here for some of those things. And so uh, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, but here's the thing. We have a massive hill to climb this morning, so um, we should probably get started. 
Um, so we've been walking through Ephesians for the last several months, and we're beginning, uh, we've been, uh, we're beginning to get to the end of it. Uh, we, we're actually going to finish chapter 5 this morning. There's six chapters in Ephesians, if you didn't know. And so uh, we've been doing this since July. We're starting to get to the, to the light at the end of the tunnel. And so uh, we've been walking through, if you haven't been here, the letter to the Ephesians that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the first century city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a big deal during the first century. It was a major city in the world at the time. Right? It was an epicenter. It was just kind of a boom town for economics, for uh, cultural reasons. It was, a, it was a boom town for the social elite of their day. It was this big deal in the Hellenistic religious world of the Greeks uh, because the temple of Artemis was there. And so Ephesus was a massive, massive deal. And Paul writes a letter to them to encourage the Christians in Ephesus to understand the gospel well and understand their role in the church. Uh, they needed to, to, to understand how the gospel applied to all these things circling around them. And he wanted them to walk faithfully in light of that gospel. All right? And so he writes a letter to them to encourage them and, and call them to carry themselves in a way that puts the gospel on display in an incredibly strategic city. But he doesn't just come out of the gate with a list of action items. He doesn't give them a, a to-do list that says, all right, knock out this, this, and this in this precise order, and then everything's going to be okay. He gives them identity. He starts out in the first half of the letter by giving them God's identity, specifically that God is the eternal and eternally good creator king, that he is saving and redeeming and reconciling of people for himself who have no business knowing him, who don't deserve to be in his presence, but he draws them into his presence. He takes them from spiritual death to spiritual life. This God is good. This God is active and working. And he's bringing about his purposes in the world. And then Paul transitions into their identity in light of who God is in the back half of the letter. Paul gives them their own identity as recipients of the great love of God. And they are people who are gathered to God and gathered to each other, who now live with these new identities. So we've been specifically in chapter 5 for several weeks now. Um, chapter 5 opens up with Paul calling us to walk in love as Christ loved us. And then he clarifies what that means because Christ died on our behalf. And that's, a, that's, a, that's something that dumbfounds us because Christ died for his enemies. Like that's, that's what the Bible calls us in Romans chapter 5, right? That, that we are in the category of enemies of God, but yet Christ, his example of love, what love is to Jesus is to lay down his own life for those who have absolutely no business knowing him. Like I don't tend to define love that way. How about you? I certainly don't tend to extend love towards those that I would put in the category of enemy. That's exactly who Jesus is. Jesus' definition of love is not just not an emotion. It's not an emotion that can't be affected by the circumstances going on around him. For Jesus, love is an act of emptying himself and serving another. It's an action of humbling himself that results in exalting and lifting up the beloved. So I know some of you may be wondering if we're ever going to move past this theme, right? Like we've been, we, this is our fourth week in chapter five. We talked about love for two weeks before we got into the four weeks on chapter five. Like I'm, I'm sure for some people, myself included, kind of feels like we're beating a dead horse, right? Two reasons why we have to keep bringing up the love thing. Number one, 
Because that's Paul's overarching theme in all of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6. So it would be exegetically irresponsible of us to attach some other topic to it because that's what Paul's talking about, right? That's the opposite of how you want to read the Bible. You can't just throw out whatever topic you want it to be for that moment. No, this is what Paul's talking about. He's talking about love. Everything is framed in the context of love here. The second reason, though, is this. Um, Every point of misinterpretation that we have in chapter 5, every time that people will come to one of Paul's commands in chapter 5 and completely miss the point in their application, comes when they fail to ground or frame that command within the overarching umbrella of loving like Jesus loves. Every one of them. I, like, let me give you some examples. Um, in verse 4, uh, the command is given to avoid crude joking, right? Well, if, if that command is pulled out of the context of loving like Jesus loved, if all we have is the command to avoid crude joking, that becomes something of a technical sense. And so as long as I can refrain from certain specific words and certain specific types of vocabulary, then I'm in the clear, right? Even if I am blatantly serving myself and degrading someone else as I speak. But because I avoided the vocabulary list, I'm in the clear. But within the context of loving like Jesus loves, Paul's command in verse 4 is about serving with the way you speak. It's about lifting up and emptying yourself. The command is about serving others. In verse 13, we talked about exposing darkness, right? Outside of the context of loving like Jesus loves, exposing darkness becomes a witch hunt. So I'm going to use truth like a hammer and make sure I root out all the bad people. But inside the context of love, inside framing it like Paul wants us to understand it, speaking truth is about serving others. It's never about serving myself. It's about emptying myself and about saying what is necessary to draw them close to God, even if it's painful for me. So why do I bring all that back up? Why are we spending time talking about stuff that we talked about weeks ago? Because our next verse is by every measure the one that gets misrepresented the worst when you fail to frame it within the context of loving like Jesus loves. It is mistreated, it is misrepresented, it is misconstrued by multiple sides in a culture war and neither one of them are thinking of sacrificial love during any second of it. And so the tragic reality is that many people have been harmed by selfish readings and selfish applications of verse 22. So much so that some people when we get to the text shut themselves off to listening before we can even talk about it. Can we be honest? That is one of the most tragic things I've ever heard. To close ourselves off to the word of God because we predetermined that it's not for me. Oh, that, that breaks my heart. So if that's you, I want to make you a couple of promises this morning. The first one is this. I'm going to teach this text probably very differently than what you've heard it before. 
And maybe you've sat under incredible Bible teaching before and, 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 and this text has been taught properly, but I have personally been in the room more times than I can count when this has been absolutely butchered. And so I'm probably going to preach this text differently than you've heard it before. So hang on to me for about 40 minutes because we may be going somewhere with this that you don't know, that you don't understand yet. The second promise is this. Um, I'm not scared of this text, and I don't think you should be either. We are a people who trust God's word, and so we're going to look at what it says and assume that God has our best interest in mind. Can we trust that? This means that we're not going to capitulate to some easier, more culturally sensitive way of preaching it so it'll be easier to swallow in polite society in 2018. Right? Can we trust this morning that God is both big enough and good enough that his commands to us are both for our good and different than what anything in this world has to offer? Like, is he big enough and smart enough and good enough that, that his good commands look nothing like what the wisdom of this world would say it is? Okay, so let me talk to another group of people for a second. The first group I made two promises to. Here's, let me talk to the second group. If you're the type that looks at this text and tends to puff up and beat your chest because you got a verse, in the most pastoral and loving tone I can give to you this morning, shut up. <laughs> Repent of your sin because your verse is coming up three verses from now. You're missing the sacrificial love of Jesus worse than the first group. There's never any ground to pound our chest over anything in this room. So now that we've dismissed with the ball, all the pleasantries, y'all ready to jump in the deep end of the pool this morning? Verse 22. Woo. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, so what does it mean to submit? It means what it says it means. There's nothing fancy going on in the Greek. There's no, there's no other word that could probably be a better translation there that, you know, that if in a perfect world, the, the, the translators of our Bible probably would have gotten that one a little bit better. No, there's nothing special going on there. Submit means submit. Paul's instructions here is for wives to actively place themselves under the leadership of their husbands. We live in a world, though, that the word submit carries a lot of baggage, though, doesn't it? Anybody ever hear that word in a positive context? <laughs> it's always framed in a negative way, right? I'm of the opinion, though, that submit carries some baggage in our culture that I think is personally unfair. Um, it's hard to wrap our heads around because, I don't know, we assume things that I don't think we ought to assume. It assumes a couple of things that don't necessarily have to be assumed when we use that word, but we tend to fall in those ruts anyways. The first one is this. Um, the first assumption is that when submission is happening somewhere, that the one who is in leadership must be doing something to oppress the ones who aren't. Like, don't we kind of just assume that in our culture when the word submit is thrown around? In other words, if, if the person in charge would just get their thumb off of them for a second, then everybody else would be on the same level. But does submission have to be forced? Is it possible for someone to submit without them actively being oppressed in some way? 
Can someone submit by choice? I think so. It's entirely possible for someone to submit without something being taken from them. The second false assumption in our culture is that value is attached to role. Meaning, if submission is in play, the one who's in charge must necessarily be more valuable than the one who isn't. Again, it's a false assumption, but we kind of, don't we fall into that rut? We fall into the rut of thinking that to give someone else deference is a value statement. We've gotten so used to making those kinds of accusations in our culture that to talk about submission in any other kind of way doesn't, like it, it creates tension in the room, right? I think so. So what if? What if despite all of our cultural trappings, there's an incredibly beautiful, eternally good way to submit? A couple weeks ago when we were in verse 21, we talked about how when we are all loving like Jesus has called us to love, when the Holy Spirit is present here, that, that we are creating a culture where we submit to one another, Right? That, that I look for ways to serve you and you're looking for ways to serve me. That, that I'm looking to defer to you, you're looking to defer to me. And that, that we're not fighting for preference here. Like we talked about this a few weeks ago. That, that in the context of the church body, that when all of us are doing what God has called us to do, that it creates a culture here where we are submitting to each other. But the church body isn't the only context of community God has placed you in. Right? He's also, for those of you who are married, has placed you in a marriage relationship. I think there are ramifications for loving like Jesus loves in the context of a marriage relationship. Yep. A natural outflowing of love means to show off the glory of Jesus in his kingdom. There's not oppression in that moment. There's gospel proclamation. So what we're left with is a responsibility to teach texts like this in a society where submission has become a dirty word. We find ourselves living in an age that believes autonomy is the pinnacle of human experience. Like, have you ever given thought to this? We live in a world that, that sees any kind of restraint as a limit to my, to my own destiny somehow. And it makes it really, really difficult to preach texts like verse 22. But what if it's possible that our own cultural misunderstandings affect the way we read the Bible? Does that happen sometimes? Yeah, it happens sometimes. And so Paul, in verse 22, begins to talk about some of those cultural misunderstandings. He says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. So why? Why does Paul address the women first? You ready? Because no woman can be led if she refuses to be. I mean, have you thought about that? But Stephen, you don't understand. My husband's an idiot. First of all, probably not true. But even if he is, it doesn't matter. Your husband could literally be the most Christ-like man this side of eternity, and he is powerless if you're stubborn. Powerless. 
He can do absolutely nothing about doing what he's been called to do by God if you don't let him. Plain and simple. And so listen, I'm going to start throwing haymakers at the men in a second. But ladies, your own obstinance is the first variable we have to, to deal with, right? We can't get anywhere with the guys if you're sitting there with a scowl on your face and your arms crossed. Paul says, submit to your own husbands as to who? The Lord. So Paul puts submission to husbands on the same level as submitting to God here. We don't get to bring the yeah buts to God, do we? Yeah, we don't get to bring the yeah buts in this situation either. But this verse doesn't exist in isolation. It's connected to something. It's the start of a paragraph, so we've got to keep reading here. Verse 25, or 23, excuse me. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay, so Paul here connects uh, submission in the home to being a picture of the submission that happens between the church and Jesus, right? This command doesn't exist for no reason. I told you a couple weeks ago that our God is not a because I said so God, right? Is that still true? Right. His commands are, are not rooted in some misogynistic attitude. They're, they're meant to do something here. And namely, in this one, it's to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. So let me walk you through a massive truth that most people in our world don't seem to understand. Your marriage does not exist for you. The purpose of your marriage is to magnify the glory of God. What about my happiness? Does God want me to be miserable? No. There are are countless fruits that come with marriage. Our God is good and he has blessed us beyond our wildest imagination. There are folks that we all know that have been married for 70 plus years who are still discovering the sweet fruits of marriage. But there is a difference between primary purpose and tertiary benefits. The purpose of your marriage, follower of Jesus, is to preach the gospel. Paul wasn't sitting around in the first century going, you know what, I need to come up with an object lesson to teach this concept. Turned around, saw the the ageless institution of marriage sitting on the shelf. Ah, I got it. This is what we're going to use. Paul's argument here is that from eternity past, at the creation of everything, God put man and woman together to be a shadow of a much more eternal, much more beautiful relationship to come. There are all kinds of fruits to your marriage. And God has blessed us in incredible ways. But the purpose of marriage is to be a shadow of a far better one. Which means, ladies, the call for you to submit to your husbands is not a value statement. And it's not a gifting statement. And it's not a capacity statement. It's a gospel statement. It's ultimately a call for you to play an incredibly beautiful role in an eternal story. 
Paul says that your job is to give the world a picture of what the church looks like as she submits to her loving and sacrificial husband. Paul says that you carry a gospel-proclaiming responsibility into your marriage relationship. That your role is to show the world what submission to Jesus looks like as you submit to your husband. Here's the dangerous part. The implication is buried in all of this, that when you fail to submit, when you fight for your own way and demand your preference, you paint an inaccurate picture of who the church is called to be. Ironically, you tend to paint an accurate picture of what the church sometimes is. But that's your role. The clarity of the gospel is on the line here. And it's on the line in the midst of a world that desperately needs to see what it is. Your marriage has been given to you by God for an inexhaustible number of blessings, but your marriage is not ultimately about you. And to see it as if it were aims the good things that God has given you towards yourself instead of his glory. It becomes that idolatry thing that that guy was thinking about a while ago. So Paul says, submit to your husbands. But while Paul begins with the wives, he only gave you three verses. Paul's going to turn his attention now to the men. And ladies, if I haven't convinced you yet that submission is not what you came in this room thinking it is, I can still make this promise to you. You don't want the men's job. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. All right, gentlemen, we have spent an awful lot of time over the last month and a half unpacking how massive the reality is that loving like Jesus loves is beyond us because I don't know what love really is. And here, Paul says that this is precisely the role that you play in your home. Your job, my job, is to look like Jesus. And not in the, I'm trying really hard to be a good Christian kind of way. I'm talking about in the sacrificially laying down your rights and what makes you happy for the benefit of your bride kind of way. Your job is to die to yourself. But Woodard, you don't understand. My wife's crazy. (laughs) Probably not true. But even if, doesn't matter. Like you, you really want to make this into a competition? Jesus' wife murdered him. She spat at him, ripped his beard out, nailed him to the cross, mocked and jeered him as he died to set her free from bondage. Your wife could be the craziest woman on the planet. Does not matter. Your job, my job, is to die to myself and look like Jesus in this picture. My job is to lay down what's pleasing to me, lay down what satisfies me, and intentionally die to myself for the benefit of my wife. Paul says that our job is to love our wives the same way Jesus loves his wife. 
the church. It is one of the least masculine things on the planet to point to someone else's lack of responsibility and use it as an excuse for why you can't be responsible. I mean, you want to throw out hypotheticals for a second? Let's say that your wife ignores everything we just talked about with the ladies. Doesn't matter. We've got a job to do, soldier. Get up and get in gear. Look at verse 26 again. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He says that we. Are, uh, he says that Jesus works to sanctify or cleanse his bride. So, what does that mean for us? It means that we do what is necessary to get our wives where we where we want them to be. That we work towards ends that help their relationship with Jesus. Is another way we could say that. That my job in my home is to not just meet the basic needs of a roof and food and whatever. It's to create an environment where she flourishes. Best picture I could think of to give you here is the, the role of a gardener. And I know gardening is not something that seems very masculine. I, it weirds me out too. But it was literally the job of the first man on the planet, so maybe we ought to redeem it. I don't know. But what does a gardener do? They cultivate They play the long game. They work now tirelessly for a harvest way down the road. They do what is necessary. They they provide the environment. They nurture. They do what is appropriate to get their project to where they want it to be. No, your wife's not a project. But you love her. You want good for her. You have godly hopes and dreams for her. So Paul says, work now towards those ends. That's what a gardener does. He starts his work long before there's any reward in it. Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So Paul here says that we are to take care of our wife like we take care of our own body, which may not translate well in our culture. (laughs) If this is significant, bears testimony to how I take care of my wife, I'm sorry, Katie, all right. I don't think Paul's talking about physical fitness here. I think he's talking about the reality that when you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you're tired, you sleep. You meet the needs of the body, right? My job is to look for what my wife needs and do something about it. It's to love her well by meeting the needs that she has. Why? Well, because God's connected us together as one body. Look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it relates, uh, saying that it refers to Christ and the church. All right, so Paul again uh, frames marriage within this overarching story of, of preaching the gospel well, right? That that we are one flesh and it's a shadow of what God is doing to unite a people to himself called the church. So gentlemen, 
That means that the call for you to lead sacrificially in your home is not about being king of the castle. It's not about taking what's rightfully yours. It's called to play a monumental role. Your job, our job, is to show the world what Jesus looks like. If you thought the ladies had it hard, the implication for us is that if we fail to model this, if we use our position and our authority in our homes to serve ourselves instead of our wives, the implication that we paint to a lost world is a misrepresentation of Jesus himself. I believe the Bible teaches that one day as the leaders in our home will have to stand and give an account before God for how we led and how we misrepresented him. Gentlemen, that ought to terrify you. Not to terrify me. For our own sake, it is better not to phone this one in. It won't end well. And this is the part of our time this morning that we desperately need to remind ourselves that we are operating within the context of therefore. You remember? We've been talking about it for several months now, but what we've been saying is we walk through the back half of Ephesians that we need to constantly remind ourselves that the commands to do come chronologically after all the duns that Jesus has accomplished for us. And so we're not earning anything here. These commands are about lining us up with who God has already joyfully declared us to be. We're not cleaning ourselves up. We're not putting ourselves in a position to be loved and accepted by God. We're walking as consistently as we possibly can so that people get a picture of who our God is and how good he is and what he has done for us. Ladies, if all you have is the command to submit, you're going to find it really, really hard the next time your sinful husband does something sinful. Right? But the command... To submit to your husband is not dependent upon the righteousness of your husband. It's dependent upon your relationship with Jesus. Because you belong to Jesus, you can walk as you've been called to walk regardless of your circumstances. You don't need your husband to get it figured out before you can do what you've been called to do. And for those who belong to Jesus, you can trust that Jesus will carry you through. Gentlemen, if all you have is the command to lead like Jesus leads, you're going to fail before you make it out to the car this afternoon. Think you got what it takes? I don't. But as you walk in repentance before him and as you submit to Jesus, he'll carry you through. You can't fix your marriage by trying harder at all these things. We suck at all these things. Just the truth, right? But we can play the thought experiment for a second. Like, what if? What if you could fix everything? What if you had the power and the, the type A personality and you could actually pull off fixing all the junk that you got to fix? And let's say, what if you had the actual capacity, the strength and fortitude to, to not only fix those problems, but carry out that perfection from now until the day that you go home to be with Jesus? Even in our hypothetical world, your marriage still has a shelf life. Because it's not about you. It's pointing to something else. Because marriage is a temporary shadow to point us to a much more beautiful reality. 
We need Jesus to redeem us and our marriages. Look at verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, verse 33, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul says that this is a mystery, and it's talking about something that's far bigger than us, but it's also still really, really practical. There's practical implications here. So can I, can I be a good pastor for once and try to you know, give you some practical stuff? Gentlemen, lose the small stuff on purpose. Like whether it's what you're going to eat for supper or what color to paint the walls. I mean, can we just talk about the dumbest one? Like everybody knows what it is. Put the toilet seat down. <laughs> She's an adult. You're both using the bathroom. It's going up and down all the time. It doesn't matter. She is a grown woman. She ought to be responsible for turning around before she falls in. Those are all truths, but it's also low-hanging fruit, right? Train yourself to put that sucker down, and you are on the fast track to piling up a bunch of small victories in the serve-your-wife-well department, right? (laughs) It is stupid. But you can knock out a whole bunch of stupid little things and feel pretty good about yourself for a while. Lose the small stuff on purpose. How this works in, in, in my home? I, I let Katie's preference be the thing we go with on a thousand things. And it's not because I don't have opinions about stuff. I have opinions about everything. Really strong ones sometimes. But I'm the gardener. I'm creating a culture in my home. I'm creating a culture in my house that says that when I put my foot down about something, it's not because I'm trying to be selfish and serve myself in that moment. I've given her a thousand reasons to trust otherwise. Because I'm the gardener, I'm putting in the work now for things I need later. And I'm not batting a thousand on this, not even close, but I'm working on it. Because I'm creating a culture when those big decisions come up, like a decision a year and a half ago for us to move our family from Texas to New Hampshire, my wife has an insanely long list of example after example after example that that when I say, no, we need to do this, she can trust where my heart's at in that moment. Because it's not to serve me. And so as I train myself to root out the selfishness in myself, I give her more and more reasons to trust me. Guys, use the little things to invest in the big things. It's that easy. Ladies, Practical thing for you. Paul here specifically mentions respect. How you talk to your husband, and this is critical, how you talk about your husband to others matters to him. If you're always throwing out the pot shots, and I get it, we live in a culture that that paints every husband and dad character as the oaf. Like, isn't that the dad character on every TV show made in the last 30 years? I know we live in that culture. And listen, I've, I've been in the room like when a bunch of ladies get together to, to vent on just how terrible their husbands are. That happens a lot of the times. I get it. 
I try to find my way out of that room as quickly as possible, but I've been in that room. I know we live in that culture, but listen, if you keep playing the oaf card, he's going to feel like one. He'll probably start to act like one. Your words are some of the weightiest things on the planet for him. They make or break him. Guard, guard what you say. But the reverse is also true because when you speak life to your husband, when you speak in a way that honors him and, and shows respect for him, it breathes life into him. You want to see him do some good things? Start speaking to him in a way that, that encourages him towards that. And watch what happens. God will use it. It'll light a fire under that boy. It's a southern way of saying it. It's a pretty sad trade to cut the legs out from under your husband because you thought you could be funny for a second. Gentlemen, it's a worse trade to selfishly get your way on something that won't matter an hour or two from now. Play the eternal game. So how do we all play the long, how about we all play the long game and love like Jesus loves? So how do we respond to God's word this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God. You do that by taking steps of obedience towards what he's called us to, right? And maybe, I don't know, maybe you're doing well at this, but maybe you're not, and you need to repent of some stuff. Repent of failing to play your gospel role well. You viewed and treated your marriage as if it was to serve you. Nothing could be further from God's design. Very rarely or anything that he's given us to serve us. That includes the incredible gift of marriage. And so repent this morning and press into a God who redeems us and our failures. I got some things I can repent of today. You're probably not very different from me. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not married yet. Store this away. There's probably more than a couple of people in here who wish they could have had a better start. And I bet they have a story or two to, to share if you ask them about it. So if that's not you, follow it away. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up here to pray with you and talk with you if that's helpful for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. You're, you can respond this morning as well by meeting the one who makes all things new. You and your marriage. You can respond this morning to the one who changes you and changes marriages. He pays the debt of your sin by dying in your place and reconciles you to himself and calls you his own. Maybe this morning you've realized that you want to take that, that step of following Jesus. You do that by repenting of your sin and coming to him as Lord. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good to us. Thank you for Ephesians even when it flies in the face of our culture. God, I know my own heart well enough to know that I fight back against some of these things. I have more selfish moments than I'm proud to admit. But you loved us first. You loved me before there was anything in me that could return love to you. You forgave me before there was anything in me that would appreciate your forgiveness. You laid down your life for me even as I spat and drove the nails.
Oh, God, make me a better husband than I'm capable. I don't have the strength. Would you raise up godly women in our church that, that love their husbands well? Would you help us all share your gospel faithfully, both in word and in action? God, let's not use your gifts to serve ourselves, but to make you famous. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.